when I was 10, I won the Super Bowl every day. I used to uh, go and I was a huge San Francisco 49ers fan and miraculously I figured out how I could be Steve Young throwing it to me, Jerry Rice. And so every single day, I would play out the Super Bowl with me and, and the team and the guys going and defeating the Dallas Cowboys. And I never lost. I was undefeated in the Super Bowl every day. So essentially, the only difference between me and Tom Brady is that Tom Brady has lost in the Super Bowl. And the way that I was able to win every day was that I was the one that was writing the script. I was the one that had put the plan together. And in every script that I wrote, in every plan that I made, I always included me winning in the end. And you know, I think that's a picture of providence. I think that's a picture of what we see God doing with us through his providence. That providence is God's directing of God's script to God's conclusion. It's God's plan carried out by God's governance. That providence has to do with control, the control of God and the authority of God. But it's more than just control. And it's more than just authority. That providence is the control and authority of God activated by his superintending work to accomplish his plan to a specific end. And so what we're going to see this morning... We're going to see in the life of a young man named Joseph, the providence of God put on fullest display for us. We're going to see the providence of God working its way through the life of an ordinary young man. And we're going to see how it parallels the way that providence works in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. So today we're going to cover all the way to chapter 40. I'm going to just tell you a lot of the story and we're going to jump in to the scripture uh, to read specific parts from time to time. So beginning in verse 1 it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah for his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their, brother, their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to reign, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. 
This is not a story about Joseph. Even though we won't hear from him until Joseph finds himself in difficulty, this is not a story about Joseph. This is a story about God. Even more specifically, this is the story about how God works through all of the tiny, unsuspecting, even excruciating details of our lives to accomplish a particular end, to arrive at a particular conclusion in his story. That is, this is a story about the providence of God and how God works through the ordinary means of life and the ordinary experiences of life here to bring his people to the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, to bring his people into the land of Egypt as he had promised Abraham, to allow his people to become a great nation that would be a blessing to all nations. The promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we're going to see here is how he accomplishes that, how he delivers that promise, and how he sees it to its fullest fruition. And what we're going to find in the life of Joseph is the same thing that we find in our lives. That providence is filled with ups and downs, twists and turns. And that providence very often gives us a blow that we didn't anticipate. And so what I want us to see is what you can expect from God's providence. And the first expectation that I want you to have is that providence hurts. Providence hurts. If there was ever anyone in the history of the world that should have found themselves on a psychiatrist's couch, it was Joseph. So so Joseph was Jacob's second youngest son, his first son to his favorite wife, Rachel. And when I have to make that sentence, the first son to his favorite wife, Rachel, you already know there is dysfunction in this family, that things are not exactly as they would be, have him to be. Now, Jacob was Joseph, or Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, and Jacob really didn't hide it. Jacob really didn't conceal that he was his favorite son. In fact, he marked him as his favorite son. He gives him this Conway Twitty sequined jacket that he can wear. And it's like walking a big banner. This would be like if you had 12 sons and 11 of them are driving 20-year-old Kias. And then when Joseph turns 16, he gets a brand new Corvette, all right? Like, this is clear, this is obvious, this is blatant and apparent. He is set aside as the favorite son of his father. And so his brothers, as you can imagine, begin to hate him. They begin to resent him. They resent the favoritism of, his fa- of their father. They resent how he doesn't have to work the same way that, he, that they work. They resent that his father uses him to check up on them and to hold them accountable. They re- resent him so that every time the name Joseph comes up, and you guys, you know what this looks like. Every time the name Joseph comes up, the tone turns angry. The tone turns bitter. And so they begin to say that everything that he does turns them more and more against him. And so you even see in verse 2, it says that he starts off by telling us he's giving a bad report on his brothers. And that's kind of cluing us into the way that the story is going. And everything that he does continues to kind of cause it to spiral. And, he has these, and one of the things that happens is he keeps having these dreams, right? That he has two dreams of essentially the same substance. And in both of the dreams, Joseph has all of his brothers and even all of his family coming and bowing down to him in submission. Now this is a little bit of Brother 101 here, okay? If God, 
sends you a divine revelation, a dream in your sleep that has all of your siblings, your mom and your dad, bowing down to you in submission, you should hold that to yourself. You should keep that one close to the vest because it's going to fly over like a lead balloon. And so right out of the gate, many of you, you're able to relate to Joseph because Joseph has real dysfunction in his family. Joseph has real dysfunction in his life. Now this is a curious situation because what control does Joseph have over the dreams that he received? Now, we may be able to argue back and forth as to whether or not Joseph should have disclosed these dreams to his brothers and disclosed these dreams to his father. But the truth is, is that Joseph had, had no say in whether or not he received the dream. That the dream was sent to him by God. Now, why would God work this way? Why would God give Joseph a dream ahead of time? A dream to show him where his life was going to go. Why would God not just do it? Why would God not just bring about these circumstances and have Joseph's brothers bowing down to him? This is a clue from the author to us that this is a story about providence. That this is a story about the plan of God unfolding through circumstances, unfolding in Joseph's life. So so he's telling Joseph, this is where your life is headed. This is who you're going to be. This is what you're going to do. But he doesn't tell Joseph how it's going to come about. He doesn't tell Joseph what all the details are going to be. He doesn't tell Joseph what he can expect along the way. And so he gives him this dream because what God already knows that Joseph doesn't know is that Joseph's experience is going to be filled with ups and downs. That the hatred and bitterness of his brothers that he's already experienced in chapter 37 is just going to be the tip of the iceberg. And there are going to be a lot of the time in which the dream that God has given to Joseph and the promise that God has made to his people is going to appear as though it's in question, but God is going to bring to his mind the dream that he had so that one day when Joseph is able to look back over the whole of his life and see how all of the circumstances fit together, that even though he couldn't see it in the moment and even though he didn't know it in the day, he'll be able to see how the providence of God has woven together all of his life to the fruition of what God had said from the beginning would come to be. That God had given him a promise that would hold him fast through the days of trial, through the days of waiting, through the days of preparation. That he had told him that there are going to be days in which this is going to feel out of control. There are going to be days in which this is going to feel crazy. But you're going to have something that is going to remind you that God is always in control. See, God is in control of everything that appears out of control. God is in control of everything that appears out of control. That's the point of Joseph's dream, and that's the point of God's word to us too. That in the scriptures, that God has revealed to us how all of the the circumstances of life are going to fit together to ultimately culminate in the victory of his church, in the deliverance of this church, in the establishment of his kingdom. But a lot of the time, it doesn't feel anything like that. That God, through his word, has told us exactly how this is going to end and where this is headed to and how all of this is going to be for our good and for his glory. But we go through moments and we go through days and we go through seasons of our life and it feels like everything is out of control. But God has given us his his word so that we, like Joseph, might be able to say that God is at work. And I know that God is at work because God has told me that he's at work, even if I can't see it. 
that God sent you his word so that you would be anchored down as life's winds blow, that God is in control of everything that appears out of control. So the situation in Joseph's life, it moves from, from dysfunctional to nuclear. That all of his brothers are out and they're in Shechem. And in Shechem, which is about 50 miles away from where he, where he and his father were, they're there and they're tending the flock. And so his father, Jacob, or Israel, this, this is the same person, that he sends Joseph off to go and to give him another report. Now you have to wonder at this, at this place whether or not Jacob is as blind as Isaac was at the end of his life. Like could he not perceive that there was tension between the brothers? Could he not see the issue that was at hand? And so Joseph goes to great lengths to locate his brothers. And he goes and he has to find a stranger, has to help point him the way. And he ends up coming to Shechem. And the problem is, is that Conway Twitty's sequin jacket, as he turns over the crest of the hill, begins to sparkle and gleam from a long way off. And his brothers see him and they begin to conspire. They decide that this is the day in which they can get do away with daddy's little prince. That they can do away with this dreamer who believes that they're all going to bow down. And they say, come on, dreamer, come on down. Let's see whether or not your dream holds true. Let's see whether or not you're really the anointed, the chosen one. Let's see if you are who you think you are. And they conspire to kill him. They decide that what they're going to do is they're going to slay him. And then they're going to take that special code and they're going to dip it in a goat's blood and take it back to their father and convince him that he's been killed by a beast. Reuben, who's already in hot water with Jacob because of earlier indiscretions, comes and he decides that he has to intervene, that he can't have Joseph's blood on his hands. And so he says, he tells him, look, we, we can't commit murder. Let's just throw him in the bottom of a cistern. Maybe there he'll starve to death. Maybe there he'll climb his way out. But, but at least then it won't necessarily be on us. And Reuben had it in the back of his mind that he was going to come back and rescue Joseph. So they throw him into the bottom of the cistern and Reuben goes away and the rest of the brothers, they're there and they unpack a picnic, okay? Amos says in his prophecy that the brothers of Joseph are all around the, the, the top of the cistern sitting there eating a hand sandwich, deciding exactly what they're going to do. And the whole time they're there having their picnic, their little brother is down at the bottom of the cistern and he's shouting and screaming and pleading with them for his life. It's a sadistic picnic if there's ever been one. And so they, they're there and they're eating and the brothers are, are, are deciding what they're going to do and their, head, their heads begin to level out a bit. But you know, there's a picture being painted for us here. There's a picture being painted for us here. See, Shechem, Shechem is not by chance. It, we skipped over Genesis chapter 34, but if we would have read Genesis chapter 34, what we would have seen is the defilement of Jacob's daughter Dinah. And what his sons decide that they must do is that they must go and avenge her, her disgrace and avenge her humiliation. And they actually go and they slaughter by deception all of the men of Shechem. An unproportional, disproportionate uh, uh, vindication of the sister, a disproportionate punishment for the nature of the crime and it brings great it brings great shame to Jacob and yet they are unrepentant and they double down and so here they are the hard-hearted hateful brothers of Joseph in the land of their unrepentant sin and what does jo Jacob do he says Joseph come here I'm going to send you the innocent son 
the innocent son sent to the land of sin, to the hard-hearted people, to his hard-hearted sons with the message, with the word of his father. And how does Joseph respond? He says, here I am. Here I am, send me. It's a picture, isn't it? That this is the call of a prophet. This is the call of a prophet. To go and to speak on behalf of the Father to his people, to his children, a message in which they are going to reject and a messenger whom they are going to hate. A people that are going to reject him in the land of their sin. And Joseph is to go and he is to speak on their behalf. And yet we already know that he, like Jeremiah who was stoned, like John the Baptist who was beheaded, like Isaiah who was sown in two, will at the same time find his demise. It's painting us a picture of the greater prophet, isn't it? The innocent son sent by the father to his children in the land of their sin. The word who becomes flesh and dwells among his people. And his people reject him there. And his people crucify him. But this is going to be a painful call on Joseph's life. That providence has a painful path. A path that is going to hurt That he is the elect of God, but he would pay the price for it. He is the chosen son. He is the anointed one. But God's chosen are the world's rejected. See, there's two different ways that you can process pain. There's two different ways that we can process the pain with which we see in our world. We can have a naturalist view or a supernaturalist view. That is, we can believe that it's random or we can believe that it's intentional. We can believe that it's spontaneous or we can believe that it is by design. And the natural mind rejects providence and its choices and refuses God as its director. The natural mind is more comfortable with nothingness than the God who sits upon his throne and brings all things within his authority to a certain conclusion. The natural mind embraces the insanity of randomness over purpose, of chaos over control. The natural mind prioritizes individuality and self-interest and personal autonomy over everything, even the hope that a sovereign God can bring. So for all of us, for all of us who are God's people, for all of us who are God's chosen nation, for all of us who are supernaturalists, who reject secularism, for all of us who choose providence over natural selection, for all of us who choose purpose over love, we will find ourselves in the crosshairs of those who hate what we love and resent what we know. That our worldview is a critique of their worldview. That our worldview is a rebuke of their worldview. And so we, as the Lord's chosen, will be the world's rejected. That is the pain that we know and the way that we interpret it will actually serve to intensify the pain for a little while. That it will actually serve to intensify the hardship and the hurt that we know on this side of eternity. 
In verse 20, when he says, when, when the brothers say, we will see what will become of his dreams, they are saying, in essence, we'll see if God is with him or not. We'll see if he's really Mr. Chosen as he says that he is. We'll, and we're left wrestling and wondering whether or not it is man or God that is victorious. Whether or not it is those who appear to have power and prominence on earth and strength on earth or those weak as they are, vulnerable as they are, though they have God in their corner. Who is it that will triumph? It's the same question. It's the same wrestling match that's happening in homes all around our community this morning. What does pain mean? Does pain mean providence or randomness? Does pain mean purpose or misfortune? The brothers are sitting there and they're eating their ham sandwiches and, they're, and Joseph is screaming from the bottom of the cistern, as you can imagine. And they realize as, as their anger begins to abate a bit and their, their senses come back to them that they're squandering a wonderful business opportunity. That this is a chance for an investment. This is a chance to be able to, to go and to keep the lunch money that mom and dad gave you and go buy some, uh, some candy bars at the store. That what they can do, rather than kill Joseph, they can sell him. They can sell him into slavery. And they see a group of Midianites that come by. And they, where Shechem was, was on a, a trade route. And they're right there. And the Midianites are coming over the trade route. And it was very common in that day for them to buy slaves and to go and to sell them. And so the Midianites, they, they, they fish uh, Joseph up out of the cistern. And they sell him to the Midianites. And the Midianites end up selling him to a man by the name of Potiphar. Now I want you to imagine those early Israelites out in the wilderness reading this for the very first time. We, we keep coming back to that because that is the backdrop of Genesis. That is the context to which it is written. And I want you to think of how strange chapter 39 of Genesis must have read. Chapter 39 begins and ends, it's bookended with this statement, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph. Now, when Joseph is the favored son of his father, it looks like the Lord is with Joseph. When Joseph is wearing the, the coat of many colors, adorning him as the anointed one, it looks like the Lord is with Joseph. But when Joseph is hated by his brothers and cast down into the dungeon of the cistern and then sold into slavery into the pagan land of Egypt, it looks like anything but that the Lord is with Joseph. And yet here in chapter 39, for the first time, we hear God speaking up, and it is the covenant name of God. You'll notice in, verse, in chapter 39 that it's all caps. Lord is written in all caps saying, this is Yahweh. This is the one that has made the covenant. This is the one that has promised to him. This is the one that has said that he will make him into a great nation and this is the God that will hold him fast. The Lord is with him. And so what we see is that in Potiphar's house, Joseph prospers. That even in slavery, he is able to prosper. And so providence doesn't just hurt. Providence surprises. Providence surprises. Joseph is riding quite the roller coaster here, isn't he? He's the favored son to an imprisoned brother, to a slave in a foreign land, to being prospered so that even as a slave, he now is over the whole household of an important man. And all of this happens before the age of 20. Like this is buckle your seatbelt, hang on for dear life roller coaster. My goodness. How many of our lives feel just like that? How many of your lives feel just like that? 
And the question that begins to come up is, how could God's providence, how could God's script include such opposite extremes in the same plan? How in the same plan could Joseph know the joy of his father's love and the bitterness of his brother's hatred? How in the same plan could you know the joy of a devoted marriage and the pain of infertility? How is it that you could know what it is to have children and the the joy that they bring into your home, but not the health to actually be able to fully experience it? How how is it that you could know the joy of, of starting a new business and seeing it take off, only to find out later about the pain when the recession hits to watch it collapse right out from under you? How is it that the same plan, the same design, the same script could have such polar experiences? And how can it be that the Lord is with us in them all? How is it that the Lord, it could possibly be according to the desire and the design of of a sovereign and gracious and good and loving and committed and covenanting God? See, God works through the surprises of providence to exercise the faith of his people. God works through the surprises of providence to exercise the faith of his people. That God's plan for us uses the ups and the downs, the lefts and the rights, the failures and the successes, the pains and the joys to form and to shape and to use it like resistance training that we might develop muscles that otherwise would be atrophied. That just like running uphill develops different, different muscles than running downhill. So God works through the ups and the downs in our lives. So God works through the failures and the successes in our lives. So God works through the fulfillment of our dreams on one day and the dashing of our dreams on the next. That providence isn't just about today. That providence is as much about tomorrow and a month from now and 10 years from now, and in fact, a million years from now, that providence has all of it in view, and what is happening today, and what God is doing in your life today, and what you're experiencing you today, is preparing you for the providence of tomorrow, and preparing you for the providence for your elderly years, and preparing you for the providence of eternity. That one season of providence and one moment of providence is moving you forward and progressing you toward the next season of providence. And that he is using the experiences that you know, even the hurt that you face and the surprises that you experience. Like resistance training, like running uphill, like lowering the bar to work different muscles than ordinarily would have worked. So that ultimately when you say, I feel as though my breath has been taken from me. I feel as though I don't know what's going to come next. And when you feel as though you're going to be overwhelmed by the surprises, that you are reminded that in the providence of God, in the plan of God, in the sovereignty of God, surprises are always one-sided. Surprises are always one-sided. That from the beginning, God has been planning it. From the beginning, God has been doing it. From the beginning, God has been designing it. But God has already written the end, and you will make it. Let's read together now. In chapter 39, verses 7 through 15, and what we're going to see is the biggest surprise yet in the life of Joseph. Chapter 39, beginning in verse 7. I'll start just at the end of verse 6 there. 
Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Is there any way to read that story? And not come away and say, poor Joseph. There's, it's impossible. You're, you're reading and you have a guy and it's like, finally. Man, I bet you can relate to this. It's like, it's like finally, things are beginning to trend up. Finally, life has steadied a little bit. Finally, life has stabilized. I mean, he's went through the betrayal of his brothers. He's went through the cistern. He's went through the cell into slavery. He's ascended all the way through Potiphar's house so that now he's been able to carve out a good life for himself in a bad situation. And here he is. And now Potiphar's wife finds him too handsome to resist. And finding him too handsome to resist, she begins to throw herself at him and call him over to her. And he resists. And you're thinking, wow, like, this is incredible. Look at how he's standing up rightly until, until she takes him spurring her, spurning her and begins to cry out, rape. Sin and temptation, they pursue Joseph, don't they? But even in the middle of the will of God, even in the middle of righteousness, even in the middle of God's favor upon his life, temptation and sin are pursuing him. So here she is, she's like the woman from Proverbs 5 whose lips drip with honey as she calls him to her bed. And for Joseph, it's the ideal setting for an affair. It's the ideal setting for an affair. First of all, nobody would know. Nobody's there. Potiphar's gone. He's out of town. They're in the house alone. There's no other men there. There's no other people there. Here he is with a woman that is desiring him and calling for him and seducing him. Nobody would know. And on the other hand, nobody would blame him, would they? Here is a guy whose life, nothing has went according to plan. At least his plan. Here is a guy that seems to find one misfortune after another misfortune after another misfortune. Here is a guy that seems to have no pleasure, no satisfaction, nothing good in his life. And so there's a sense in which we on the outside as 21st century Americans would look at Joseph and we'd say, you know what, it's okay, he deserves this one. He deserves this one. This one makes sense. Like, he's got a lot on his plate. He's overloaded. He's stressed. He's overworked. Like, there's just been a lot of wrong things that have happened in Joseph's life. I can't even blame him for feeling the way that he's feeling. Except Joseph responds in the most unlikely way possible from our perspective. 
Joseph doesn't see his, the injustice in his life as an ability to absolve him from the responsibility of sin. Instead, Joseph asks, how can I do this to God? How can I sin against God like that? I have the, I've had the favor of God. I've had the pleasure of God. I love God. I'm obeying. How could I do this to God? But if this arrives on our step, if this arrives in our home, the way that we typically respond is not how can I do this to God, but how could God do this to me? How could God do this to me? So God will have to understand this one. God will have to get this one. Do you want to know about the character of your faith? Experience your greatest temptation in your lowest moment. Experience your greatest temptation in your lowest moment. And your response to that temptation in your moment of weakness will, refer, will reveal to you the nature and the character and the strength or weakness of your belief or unbelief. So here is Joseph, but Joseph responds by saying, my, my misfortune does not absolve me from living uprightly before the Lord. No, life's surprises don't justify our sin. That a bone-jarring divorce does not justify sexual immorality. That, that you losing your job and your livelihood does not justify financial infidelity. That you having a husband that doesn't appreciate you or respect you to the level that he should and that you are deserving of does not justify your adultery. That having an honorable ambition and a desire to use your degree for the good of other people does not exonerate you from cheating on the test to get you there. Now the surprises of providence work to clarify your source of hope. The surprises of providence work to clarify your source of hope. Is your hope for your joy found in your income or your experiences or your lifestyle or your marriage? Is the hope, your hope for the justification of your sins found in your ability to have a reasonable explanation and a, and a, and a viable uh, excuse? Or is your hope for joy and your hope for the justification and vindication of your life found in God alone? Is the justification of your sin not found in the misfortune of your circumstances, the injustice in your life, but rather the accomplishment of Christ himself? So what would you expect to happen next? You've probably watched a lot of Netflix lately. What would you, how would you expect this script to go next? Here we have a man that's experienced only misfortune. We have a moment where, where he is tempted in his vulnerability. He resists it. And our expectation, based on what we've read, is this is about the time this movie ought to be wrapping up. This is about the time this docuseries ought to be coming to a, a sixth episode conclusion, right? Except it drops again. It drops again. That Potiphar comes home and Potiphar is incensed. There's his woman, there's his wife, and she's holding what was most likely Joseph's underwear. And she's holding Joseph's underwear saying, this man tried to humiliate me. This man tried to take advantage of your absence. This man that you brought, this Hebrew that you brought into our house tried to rape me. And Potiphar is incensed. Surely, surely this isn't providence, right? 
Surely this isn't God's plan. Surely this isn't God's design. Oh, how it must have comforted those Israelites wandering in the wilderness. How it must have comforted those who were coming out against incredible odds. How it must have comforted those who felt like any given day might be their last. As they were wiped out from a civilization. Because here they are, wandering in the wilderness. And here is Joseph, wandering in the wilderness of his life. And do you know how it ends? Chapter 39. Lord was with him. The providence of God is still at work. That providence isn't always overt. And providence isn't always blunt. Providence usually whispers. That it speaks to the subtle details of our lives. The small, insignificant things that we don't think of. So here's Joseph. Joseph is, is taken out of Potiphar's house, and Joseph is thrown into a prison. It's actually the same exact word from chapter 37. The word that's translated as cistern in chapter 37 is translated as dungeon in chapter, in chapter 39. And he's thrown there. And, and honestly, this place, this prison, this cistern, this, this dungeon, it was a place of grace for Joseph. Potiphar had every right and every reason he could have had Joseph justly executed in the law, in the eyes of the law. And he doesn't. He has him in prison. It's grace. It's grace. Joseph could have been heaped into the prison. And I'll let you read chapter 40 for yourself. But he could have been heaped into the prison with, with all the other inmates and get lost in the fold. But instead, God has him thrown into the royal prison. He has him thrown into the royal prison and his, he stands out in his abilities before the keeper of the prison. It's grace. There, the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, two of his most trusted advisors end up right there under Joseph's care. It's grace. You see, that prison for Joseph was a waiting room. It was a waiting room. And providence is filled with waiting rooms. Providence is filled with times in your life and seasons in your life in which you may know God's word and you may know God's promise, you may know God's call, you may know God's plan, but you don't know God's timing. And so there you are in a holding pattern in what appears to be everything other than the plan of God, everything other than the grace of God, everything other than the goodness of God. And yet in that waiting room, God is preparing you that the waiting rooms of, of providence are places of grace. They are the evidence that God is still working through the tiny, even excruciating details of our lives to accomplish His will. And so you may know what your family is, going, is supposed to look like, and yet it's not happening, and you're in a waiting room. You may, you may sit there and, and know exactly what you want your life to look like, and yet it feels like your ambitions are farther away today than they were to yesterday. You're in a holding pattern. You may know a ministry that God has called you to and that God has equipped you for, and yet there you are and you have no people to preach to or no mission to serve on or no, no way of activating that call of God in your life. And what are you? You are there in the waiting room of, of providence allowing God to prepare you. But you see, the waiting room, though it feels like an eternity right now, though it feels excruciating right now, the waiting room won't last long from the perspective of eternity. 
that from the horizon of eternity, one day you'll look back and the waiting room will be obviously a place of grace in which the Lord was preparing you, not for that day, but for the next day. And maybe not the next day, but five years from down the road, or ten years down the road, or even at the end of your life when you would change the trajectory of your family tree. See, everywhere you look in Joseph's life, and everywhere you look in your life, you can see the whispers of providence. Do you know who the captain of the guard was that oversaw the prison? Potiphar. Potiphar. Do you think it was an accident that Joseph ended up in Potiphar's house? No, it was a whisper. And do you know that when, the, when, Pharaoh's, uh, when Pharaoh's officials were being imprisoned, do you know who Pharaoh entrusted them to? Potiphar. And Potiphar is there with a great responsibility in his life. And who is it that he knows can rise up to the task to care for the cupbearer and to care for the baker? A man by the name of Joseph. It's a whisper. And on the same day, the cupbearer and the baker will have a dream. A dream that will enable Joseph to speak the truth into their life. To set him up, not just for his own deliverance in the house of Pharaoh, but for the deliverance of all of God's people and the deliverance of God's promise. He couldn't see it yet. But even there, even there in the waiting room, even there in the prison, even there in the darkness and the dankness of that dungeon was the, were the whispers of providence. And by the end of the story next week, the composite of these whispers will be the shout of heaven. Because providence whispers in the moment, but shouts in hindsight. And that's the reality of a faith that is anchored in a resurrected Christ. Today, there may be a whisper, but tomorrow there will be a trumpet. For this story has already been written. And it's headed toward a certain conclusion. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.